We've been talking about it for months and months, and there is one week left before the special August 1st election or August 8th election on issue one. Lots of people have voted early. You still have a chance to vote early just to make sure you don't get caught up next Tuesday and forget. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. One week from today, Ohioans who have not voted early will go to the polls on issue one, the move by Frank LaRose to persuade voters to disembowel themselves. We see lots of signs that this thing is going down, and we had one more Monday, Lisa, when LaRose seemed to throw a Hail Mary pass to keep his backing of this terrible issue from destroying his political future. What did he do? This is a real head-scratcher, Chris. So LaRose, in a press release and on social media posts this week, is asking his Senate candidate rivals Matt Dolan and Bernie Moreno to give $1 million each to help pass state issue one. He says they can afford it. They're extremely wealthy. He's asking them to stand united and help invest in TV ads and encourage voter turnout to vote yes on state issue one. And he said, I hope they'll step up. Uh, Moreno campaign manager uh, David DeStefano says, not so fast. He says, I'm not aware of a similar contribution from LaRose, but will gladly match any amount that LaRose gives to this campaign. And he did say that Moreno quietly donated six figures to the State Issue One initiative, and they supplied a screenshot of a $100,000 check to Protect Women Ohio Fund LLC. Um, Dolan's campaign manager, Kathy Paraska, says, we're not joining in any gimmicks or drama, but he, she said that they want voters to understand that a yes vote is about protecting the Ohio Constitution. So we know where he stands on that. But according to Protect Our Constitution Records, that's the group that's running the yes campaign, they say that there are no contributions from any candidate, Moreno, Dolan, or um, LaRose. And the Ohio Dem is had, <laughs> this is funny, the Ohio Democratic Party says that if state issue one fails, LaRose will be crowned Ohio's biggest loser, which I think they took a page from you, Chris. <laughs> well, he will be. I mean, he, he put us all stock and trade in this, which is odd for a secretary of state who's supposed to protect the voters. He's doing the opposite. He has led the charge. He's done it sleazy the whole way. And if he if this goes down, the opponent his opponents in the Senate race are going to say he's a loser. Bernie's already saying, "Hey, you you went the wrong way. You 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 know you should be talking about protecting the Constitution, not abortion." And who knows what Dolan's doing? I, Dolan is he's one of those guys just just keeps sending out these histrionic attack emails about Sherrod Brown, and I mean it's just nonsense. You know, I sent out a text yesterday morning to the people who get the, the text message I send out, just raising a question saying, do you know that 77% of the voters in Ohio are not registered in a political party? So that means more than three quarters of the people who vote in Ohio have no say in the candidates that appear on the November ballot. What if we had an open primary? I mean, the idea would be, would you get a George Voinovich and a John Glenn again instead of these cuckoos are running? I mean, think about it. Bernie Moreno, Frank LaRose, Matt Dolan are the three Republican candidates for Senate. And they're all losers. They're all, you know, fringe people crowing about right wing stuff and attacking the left instead of doing what people like Voinovich and John Glenn did, which was to try and move forward in Ohio. I got an amazing response to that question. Many, many people would love to be able to vote 
in an open primary because then you, Bernie Moreno couldn't run the way he's running. He would have to appeal to people in the center or he would lose because the centrists are the majority of Ohioans. So I'm not surprised LaRose is, is, is having desperation moves. The guy is in serious trouble. And I hope when it goes down, if it goes down, he, he's done because he really shouldn't have a seat at the table anymore. Well, it's almost like he's trying to apply a litmus test to the Senate you know, race. He's saying, okay, well, if you don't pony up a million dollars, that means you're not serious about state issue one. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, but but the, it's in their interest in, if it goes down the way he's campaigned for it. Moreno will be able to to go come from the right saying he blew it. He, you know, this was a chance to protect the Constitution, which is just utter nonsense, as anybody who's read anything about this knows. But he can attack from the right. Dolan can kind of attack from the left. I mean, he, this is, Rose put his whole name on the line here, and it's a loser. Matt Huffman's doing the same thing. I mean, Brent Larkin wrote a great column about his attack dog way, because you can sense he knows it's going down. Um, well, it's, people have a week to vote. Let's hope they vote and it goes down. Wouldn't it be nice if it, a Republican stood up and said, you know, I'm not supporting this. This is wrong. And then they get all of the non-crazy Republicans to support them. I mean, to me, that was like, here's a way to differentiate yourself. Right. If Matt Dolan would have come out and said, look, this is this is a terrible move. They shouldn't be doing it in August. And, you know, and his nonsense that people need to know it's protecting the Constitution. That's an outright lie. You're not protecting the Constitution. You are damaging the Constitution. You are making it very, very hard, if not impossible, for the people of Ohio to amend their Constitution. You're not protecting it from outside interests. Outside interests are the ones that are trying to get this thing passed. And that's that's a guy that's running for Senate. That's what we're going to have on the ballot. And the people who pick are the fringe Republicans. And that's sad. Let's stick with LaRose. How is he like the Ken character in the phenom that is the Barbie movie, which Laura saw Sunday night? Laura, you picked up on this interesting aspect. I'm watching the Barbie movie on Sunday night, dressed head to toe in my pink, surrounded by my friends and my daughter's friends and and this glorious feminist spectacle that is the Barbie movie. And Ken discovers the patriarchy. He sneaks into Barbie's convertible when she goes to the real world and finds out that men are in power in the real world, unlike in Barbie land where Barbie is president and all of the Supreme Court justices are Barbies. And he thinks we need to have the power. He also has a weird thing with horses. So he calls a special election while the women are too busy getting beers for the men to vote. And he hopes to change the constitution of Barbie land. And all I keep thinking of is, Issue one, which, you know, you could argue about the patriarchy, also special election, hoping people don't vote to change the Constitution to take away Ohioans power. Yeah, I, I thought I can't believe the moment this movie comes out, you know, two weeks before the voting day and you pick up on these changes. Again. Was it going to take 60 percent of the vote to do it or 50 <laughs> percent? They did not get into that specifics in the Barbie movie. Uh, and abortion is not a plot point in the Barbie movie. I, but I, uh, what a shock. Right. But I love that, like. The Kens, and just so we're clear, every every woman in Barbie land is Barbie, except for Midge and Skipper's there too, I guess. But every there's an Allen, but everybody else is Ken. So like, there's this weird animosity between all the Kens on, on Barbie's affection, but they all unite in the patriarchy, right? And so when LaRose reached out to his opponents yesterday, I was thinking, God, like, he's basically saying, stand united with me, men, against the tyranny of Barbie land. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I got a kick out of it. 
interesting moment. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We want to make sure that everyone who wishes to gets to vote on issue one. And it turns out that a lot of voters might be surprised if they show up next Tuesday at their traditional voting locations. How come, Layla? Well, as many as 80,000 voters in 86 precincts in Cuyahoga County might have recently learned that their polling locations have have changed. The, The changes affect precincts in South Euclid, Richmond Heights, University Heights, East Cleveland, Lyndhurst, and Cleveland. And it's for a variety of reasons. In some cases, former polling locations don't want to serve that function anymore. Sometimes a polling site is under construction and, and then became unavailable for this. And and um, suddenly other places like schools volunteered to host voters. So there have just been quite a few shifts. And in some cases, the Board of Elections is just trying to thin the number of precincts that report to one place. In Lyndhurst, for example, the Board of Elections redirected some voters from the Lyndhurst Community Center to Lyndhurst Community of Faith Church to reduce the number of precincts at that community center. Similar things are happening in Columbus. Thousands have been shifted to other polling spots there. So on cleveland.com, we have a list of a couple dozen spots that have changed, but the Board of Elections encourages everybody to go online and check ahead of time to avoid showing up at the wrong place and and wasting your time. Um, But they they also have been proactive in sending out notices to people uh, to let them know. So hopefully we won't have too much of a uh, uh, debacle on our hands when... August 8th shows up. Lisa, are you affected? I am not. I still vote at the Lindhurst Community Center, but some people in another ward from me that usually vote there are going to this church, and they did get notification of that. And of course, you can avoid all this by going down to the elections office and voting, as we've reported and shown. It's very easy to do, and you don't have to worry about your car breaking down or something Tuesday and depriving us all of your vote. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've got more politics to discuss, but a quick break to talk about the enormous amounts of cash we're seeing in gambling. The numbers are for sports betting in Ohio. How much did the sports books get in the first six months of legal sports betting in the state, Lisa? $3.8 billion (laughs) in sports bets have been made through June in the state of Ohio. That's meant $540 million in revenue for the betting companies after winnings and voided wagers are, are taken out. The betting apps were by far the biggest, you know, platform. The 18 Ohio betting apps raked in $3.7 billion, so almost all of it. Um, the 14 sportsbook physical sites raked in $107 million and that's about $11 million in revenue for them. And then at the betting kiosks, there were $6.5 million, um, and that resulted in $639,000 in revenue, most of that or some of it going directly to the lottery. So Ohio as a state from sports betting has made $54 million in tax revenue. Amazing. Yeah, that's a lot of money. The amount bet just staggers the imagination. It shows how desperately people in Ohio wanted this. It took years for the legislature and the governor to adopt it, but it is it is something Ohioans clearly want to do. I, I wonder when we will see the real ramifications of sports gambling addiction. Um, you've got to think that the ease of this has created more gambling problems for, for people that are that have that kind of affliction. You just wonder when we're going to see that and what, what it looks like. 
And it's created more betting opportunities. I mean, you can make in-game bets on whether somebody's going to get a hit or a touchdown or whether they're going to strike out, you know, so there's many more opportunities to bet, not just on the outcome. Yeah, well, maybe it'll take a year or two for us to understand how much damage it's doing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Abortion is headed to the November ballot. Laura, how much money of the people supporting it and opposing it raised for what are sure to be expensive campaigns? Yeah, we are really just getting started. I mean, think about it. It was only, what, a week or two ago that we were talking about that they had enough signatures to officially make the ballot. So we're talking about a campaign that could, on the four side, like to vote yes for this amendment, reach $35 million. So far, they've raised $9.7 million. And there's a whole lot of money from PACs, the Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom, gave 8.5 million, Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights, 1.2 million, and Ohio's Ohioans United for Reproductive Rights, $40,000. I don't know how you keep those all straight. Those all sound a lot alike. There is a lot of dark money pouring in there, but they also have about 3,000 different individuals that are giving to them. So this is also a grassroots campaign, whereas the anti-side, the anti-abortion side, raised about $5 million, and they had absolutely no individual contributors. And they're getting their money also from dark money. Two big PACs, uh, Protect Ohio Women in Action was $5.2 million, so the vast majority, and the Protect Ohio Women Fund at $100,000. What amazes me about all the spending and the campaigns we'll see is I can't imagine all but a tiny percentage of people haven't made up their minds on this. Mm -hmm. We've been debating abortion for decades and decades. It's the third rail of third rails, right? It's just every time it comes up, it's the most polarizing thing you can talk about. People know what they think about it. And so you spend all this money trying to convince them to go otherwise. Is it is it worth it? Because everywhere we've seen this come up, every other state this has come up, it's been a slam dunk. People want to enshrine the right of abortion for for the residents do you think they're just riling up the passion to make sure the people go out and vote so that you think maybe you know i like I, I like the idea of making abortion legal i believe it should be but i'm not really that passionate about it i don't really care enough to vote but if you see enough ads on both sides you're going to be like okay this is really important i guess i should take the time yeah and look there are a lot of lies told in these ads uh, they're, they're yeah. so over the top about, so like, i sex think changes Yeah. I mean, it just goes so far. And so there's a lot of back and forth trying to correct each other. And then we're in the middle trying to walk down the fine line. Although I still don't think you're, you're changing any hearts and minds. You know, I am not looking forward to a fall campaign on TV. Mm -hmm. Like it'll make me not want to watch Jeopardy with my kids because I know they'll be all over that kind of platform. Okay. And you're listening to today in Ohio. Turns out that that the story we discussed on Monday about drive times for police to a proposed jail site had some significant errors, which readers noted. Thank you for doing that. Layla, let's go over what was wrong and explain to everybody how we made these mistakes. Yeah, we're we're feeling badly about it today, but we're really glad we got to correct the record. 
This, this story ran Sunday, and it was an analysis of which of the proposed sites for the new Cuyahoga County Jail would be most conveniently located. We found that County Executive Chris Renane was correct when he said that the average drive time from any police department in the county to his preferred site in Garfield Heights would be shorter than for other sites that they've considered. That includes a site on Eddy and Kirby Road on the east side of Cleveland and the site on Transport Road that was rejected because of heavy pollution. So that part of our analysis is correct. Uh, where we erred was in the section of the analysis that broke down drive times for each of the communities that most often transport detainees to the jail. That included the Cleveland Police Districts, Maple Heights, Euclid, CMHA, and Bedford Heights. And records show that these are the communities that make most arrests. So we felt it was important to see what impact the the distance to the jail would have on them because longer drive times would mean taking officers off the street for longer periods of time while transporting transporting arrestees. And, and also it's a burden for families who are visiting inmates. Anyway, we used Google Maps to identify the distance it would take to drive from 76 different police stations to the current jail site, as well as to three these three potential new jail sites in the morning and during rush hour. For each trip, the distance in miles and the time it would take to drive was recorded using the most direct route each time. We used formulas in Excel to calculate how long officers from each department would have to drive from their respective stations to these three sites compared to their commutes to the existing jail, and it produced negative numbers which were intended to reflect longer travel times, while positive numbers reflected time saved on the road. But we accidentally confused them in two sections of that original story and started using the negative numbers to mean shorter drive times. And that meant that in those sections of the story, the conclusions of the analysis were the inverse of what they should have been. So the accurate analysis shows that for most of the Cleveland precincts and for some of the cities that most use the jail, drive times would be longer to the Garfield Heights site than to the other options Maple Heights and Bedford Heights would have shorter commutes to Garfield over the existing jail or, or any other option. Yeah, and we I apologize to everybody that we got this wrong. This is a serious issue. It's one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the last 10 years. And we like to think that we have safeguards in place to make sure we don't make this kind of mistake. And when we do, it causes a lot of soul searching on how we can prevent it in the future. We know how much people trust our information, and this is the kind of thing that really harms that trust. So stick with us. We're sorry. We'll do better. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked about abortion, but how about the campaign to put legalized recreational marijuana on the November ballot? Lisa, they're out still collecting signatures, but how much money have those folks raised? The Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol has raised $3 million to date to get their initiative on the November ballot. Most of that money has been spent. They only have about $9,400 left over, and that money has been spent on the TV ads you've been seeing a lot of and mailers and other things. Um, there were 28 individuals and organizations that donated to the PAC that supports this initiative. The biggest one was $1.2 million from the Marijuana Policy 
policy project out of Washington, D.C. This group advocates for medical and recreational pot ballot initiatives. Um, others were mostly from cultivators. There was $375,000 from the CEO of Ohio Pure Wellness, which is a cultivator out of Springfield, um, $295,000 in Cresco Labs, Ohio, which is has an Ohio presence, but it's a Chicago-based cultivator, processor, and seller of medical marijuana, and $210,000 from Jared Maloof of Sandusky County. He's uh, the owner of the Standard Wellness Holding Cultivating Group. So there is no organized opposition to this yet. The Center for Christian Virtue, which is an evangelical public policy group, said that they are planning to organize a campaign soon. It'll be interesting to see what that looks like. Or if they get any money. I just don't think there's any kind of strength of feeling to to fight this. Of course, this might not be on the ballot. They're in the middle of a 10-day period to get the extra 600-plus signatures, right? They came in short. That is correct. They needed 679 more signatures, and they have until... The 10th, I think, is next week sometime, or 10 days is next week sometime. So, uh, yeah, but Tom Heron, the attorney that represents this coalition, says he doesn't think there's going to be any problem getting those signatures. All right. Well, then it'll be on the ballot. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How hard will the shutdown of the ubiquitous yellow trucking company hit Northeast Ohio? Laura, anybody that spends any time on highways sees these trucks everywhere, even though we know nothing about them, really. Really. But now we know something. They're going out of business. Right. We still don't really know how bad it's going to affect us or even exactly how many employees we're talking about because the company isn't talking. But there is a bunch of there are a bunch of terminals in Northeast Ohio, um, Memphis Road in Brooklyn. Um, Richfield, Copley. So y- you know what these look like. I love that the it's called yellow, but to me it always looked orange on the, orange, on the side right. of it. <laughs> so a sign posted on the door of the Brooklyn terminal said, Dear Valued Customers and Employees, explain all company operations ceased at noon on Sunday. Em- union employees were supposed to call their representative. Customers were told to call an 800 number. It, the company told Teamsters they were filing for bankruptcy, but we haven't seen the filing yet. Apparently, about 30,000 people nationwide work for Yellow and subsidiaries. Uh, terminals in Green and Westchester, New York, Cincinnati, those each employed more than 100 people. Those shut down earlier this year. And so we're looking at at least 300 people in our corner of Northeast Ohio. And as for customers, we don't really even know how that's going to be felt with our shipping and goods. Well, we're, we're still worried about supply chain problems. Mm -hmm. We didn't know how tenuous supply chains were until the pandemic where you couldn't get a lot of the things that you needed in your life. This is a company that specialized in less than full truckloads of stuff. So if you're a company that only had one pallet to ship, that was their specialty. This isn't a home delivery company like UPS or FedEx, but they carry a lot of the products that ultimately would feed consumers and businesses. And when you're talking about 30,000 people, many of them truck drivers carrying things, you got to worry what this will do to the supply chain. I know locally they're saying, yeah, there's a lot of others that will absorb it, Mm -hmm. but it it seems like there's a risk here. Yeah, they handled an average of 49,000 shipments per day in 2022. That is a lot. They've been down to about 10,000 to 15,000 a day this year while they've been dealing with their issues. So somebody's going to grow and take that spot. But when that happens and who that's going to be, we don't know that. 
Yeah, we so many problems in our society were identified by the pandemic, and we really haven't done anything to fix any of them. Like childcare. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of striking how little we as a society learned from the the very obvious lessons of the pandemic. Except for work from home. We all learned that we can work from home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some can work from home. Kind of, so. sort of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a lot of mental health issues out there because of mm-hmm. that as well. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're still hoping, we're still hoping, we're optimistic that we'll hear from Mike DeWine on Cleveland's unprecedented summer of crime. But we did hear Monday from Cuyahoga County's new sheriff. Layla, what's his plan? Well, we all know violent crime is surging and the Cleveland Police Force is down more than 200 officers from its budgeted number of of 1498. And they're filling the gap ever so slowly. The city's police academy just graduated a class of only 11 officers last week. So sheriff's deputies are going to help Cleveland Police patrol downtown and the entertainment district. The new sheriff, Harold Pretalas, announced that a team of eight deputies One sergeant and other additional resources will be deployed to downtown to patrol alongside Cleveland police. Mayor Justin Bibb said he's very grateful and he's hoping for other regional collaborations to get the city through this period of of low staffing and and high crime. Yeah, I I still keep thinking that Mike DeWine could help out. I I don't know what's holding him back. We talk about how in, in Columbus there's a lot of distaste for the cities. But that hasn't been like the wine. He's more of a guy that brings people together. And yet he just is, he's been silent on this. But I wonder what help looks like. What does it look like? Is it more money? Is it bringing in the National Guard? Is it, I mean, what does that help look like? I don't think anybody knows. Or, yeah, look, it's just, it's the the pulpit, right? He could just gather criminal justice officials, criminal justice officials together in Cleveland to have a symposium on the problem and and try and lead an effort to figure out what's a way forward. We've never seen this before. We need some innovative solutions. We're not criminal justice experts, but we have them. There's plenty of them around. And why wouldn't he's the former attorney general? He's got a law enforcement background. Why wouldn't he be the guy leading that charge? I'm not saying he has to have the answers, but he could at least be one of the people helping pose the questions. That's true. That's true. But I think everybody's scratching their heads. I mean, I haven't heard a good solution yet, really. It's really an untenable situation almost. Exactly. That's why we need to get heads together to say, look, we've never dealt with this before. Let's let's attack this as the crisis it is. What extraordinary measures can we take that we haven't really thought about in the past? Who knows? And we do have a gazillion little police departments in this area. The clinic has one. The utilities all have one. Is there some way to build a better coordinated patrol presence by having all of them in better communication? I, I don't know. But Mike DeWine is the guy that could get people together to talk about that. He has the resources. He has the background. And he's just been quiet. That's all. It, it's, I'm, we're not saying it's his fault that no, we're I, in this situation. I, I, but I also think if they hold that symposium, they should hold it in downtown Cleveland and see how many get mugged when they leave. <laughs> I do think that they might should, work. I, they ought to hold it in downtown Cleveland. I think that would be a symbolic gesture to say, okay, we get what's going on here. But anyway, good move by the sheriff. He's new. We have a lot of hope that he's going to fix the jail and be a professional leader in a place where it has been lacking. 
You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Lola. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Wednesday.